I almost never get so far off topic that I have to abandon my notes fully like I did last night. <laughs> um, I so hope that was for somebody because, and I pray it wasn't in vain, um, but to, because you were deprived of, you probably got the W and the E out of Y's in the acronym. <laughs> Just to restate real quick, the wise woman worships the Lord. She cultivates intimacy, and her, she understands and hangs on to her identity in Christ. She stands on scripture, and she engages her faith. Now, the unwise woman, that's the one I didn't get to so much. The unwise woman wallows in her disappointments, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today. It's not wise to wallow and rehearse and rehash all the things about your life that you hate. Not wise to do that. The unwise woman isolates especially when she's feeling insecure. She isolates and she coddles thoughts of inferiority and insecurity. It's not wise. We don't have to do that, even if it feels true. The unwise woman strays from Scripture. She lets too much distance come between her and Scripture. She lets there be a disconnect between God's promises and her problems. She strays, not wise. And the unwise woman endures her battles apart from faith. Not wise to do that. Can we put a picture up of my... My boys, those are my boys. <laughs> Aren't they so sweet? One of the things I didn't tell you about Jordan last night, for those of you who are just here today, you might have to get the tape, um, but the one on the left, I told you he wandered from the faith. He partied, he broke my heart. Um, got married during that time in a marginal time of his life, long story short, um, on a dime, um, she changed her mind about him after almost three years of marriage and left. And uh, he's been living us with us for about six months. And that boy, what Judy wanted me to tell you because I'd forgotten, is that he is so on fire for God. He's re-engaged with the things of God. He has adapted our spiritual rhythm. Every morning, Kevin and I are up with our coffee and our Bible. He comes, he sits down, those little tattooed arms. hate those. But anyway, <laughs> got his coffee. I keep thinking God's going to invite a lotion that makes it disappear, and I'm going to slather him in his sleep. But anyway, <laughs> you could put pennies in those dimples, couldn't you? But he is following God. He's in a good church. And he said, Mom, if God ever lets me love again, she has to love God more than me. She has to love my family like I love my family, and she's got to be in a faith community. And I praise God. My middle, my, the middle guy there, that's my oldest, that's Jake. And, of course, Kevin and Luke is our middle one on the right there. So I do believe in arranged marriage, so I'll be taking applications. <laughs> I got to have some kind of say in this thing. But anyway, praise God. He makes a way where there is no way, where we cannot see a possibility of him redeeming the story. He does, and he is. Amen, right? Well, this helps my honey. If I say this all at once, it answers all the questions for Kev at one time. So I'm going to do this really, really quick. My background is in fitness. I was in the fitness industry for about 15 years off and on in between babies and sickness. Um, but what I've learned, this is balance that works when life doesn't, is our physical and our spiritual health are the two disciplines we're first to let go of. And then we cram all kinds of stuff in our time commitments. And that's how we go out of balance. But if you put a few hours a week into physical and spiritual health, and then you make everything else, get in the line and take a number, you last long and finish strong. Who needs that? And that's how it works. Okay. You get to pick. That's a lot of pressure. Don't mess this up. Okay. Alone in marriage, encouragement for the times when it's all up to you. If anybody, if you're honest and you've been married for any length of time, you go through a one-sided season of marriage where more is on your shoulders than on 
on his or on yours as a couple. He could be in seminary. He could be in sin. He could be, you know, pursuing an education, be in the military, just be depressed, sick, whatever. But when the, I've learned, and we walked through this season, and again, I honor my husband for letting me tell this story. What I've learned is no matter the reason of the one-sided season, the same stuff comes up for us as women. Loneliness, fear, worry, anger, that kind of a thing. And this is to take you by the hand and lead you to a more intimate place with God, regardless of what he does. We only have three of these left, so Kev asked me not to give it away. But I will tell you, this woman is not depressed because she's in a one-sided marriage. She's depressed because she forgot to wear the good bra for the photo shoot. <laughs> I am like, you couldn't hike those girls up for the big day? Really? This is my cover? I love Moody, but really? So she's, she's, she's bumming. And I, anyway... Alone in marriage. <laughs> That's going to come back to bite me, I'm pretty sure. Anyway, Uncommon Woman, this is, all, this is one of my signature books. I do love this book. Um, this is all about breaking. We've earned a stereotype of being petty, gossipy, catty, insecure, but it comes from a place of us not knowing who we are. This is to break that mold of what's common for women, and it's living out of the love of God so you can take the high road and be uncommon. It's about your identity and the love of God for you. Who needs that? This is a pretty meaty read. This is uh, Embracing Your Freedom. The Bible talks about the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus says, I come that you have life and life abundantly. This is like boot camp for the soul. 50% of the royalties goes to International Justice Mission. So while you're getting your land back, because this is going to take you on a boot camp to recover your territory, at the end of each chapter, you'll get a little education on human trafficking. So there's a prayer for you and a prayer for the girl who's literally in captivity. Um, it's not for everybody. It's a pretty heavy read, but it is for definitely for some. Embracing your freedom. Your beautiful purpose is about walking out your purpose. God has put a dream in every one of our hearts. These are not haves and have-nots. Every one of us has a, a call of God on our lives. What gets in the way is self-ambition. We get ahead of God or self-preservation. Our fears make us fall behind. This is how you untangle all that so you can be bold and walk out God's purposes for you. Your sacred yes, you know a little bit about it. We'll talk more about it, but it's the sloppy yes, the shackled yes, and then living to serve an audience of one. It's about redeeming the time, understanding the importance of your call, the gift of your time, treasure, and talents, and living as one who's spoken for. A bunch of years ago, you know, I struggled with insomnia and a few other things, and I, I was, and I'm battle anxiety every once in a while, and I wrote a blessing on my Facebook page thinking, if I'm working, if I'm dealing with this, maybe, maybe you are too. So I said something like, may you know that you're not under your circumstances, you're under the shadow of his wing, and I wrote a blessing. Well, lots of people shared it. Then I wrote one and again the next night. I did that four nights in a row. Well, the fifth night, it had nothing, so I didn't write anything, and I got messages going, hello, <laughs> ready to be tucked into bed now. <laughs> Where are you? And uh, I would post pictures with them. Well, my publisher put these in a coffee table book with pictures. This is blessings for the evening, blessings for the morning, and the woman one comes out in August. But these are flying, and I'm, I'm absolutely amazed. And if you're on my Facebook page, you get a blessing every morning and every night. So there you go. And uh, blessings for the morning. My next book that comes out this August is Your Powerful Prayers. So it's Your Beautiful Purpose, Your Sacred Yes, Your Powerful Prayers, and that's what this morning's message is based on. Thank you for the book. You're so welcome. I always pray that God gets the right people, gets the right book to the right person. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these beautiful women. Thank you that though we feel like we have loose ends in our story, 
you intend to perfect that which concerns us. Lord, you redeem our lives from the pit. You're writing a beautiful story with our lives. We honor you in this place. Father, we honor you. We humble ourselves before you. You will finish what you started. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. Jesus, I pray for a gift of faith in our hearts to understand on a whole new level who we are and what we possess because we have you. I can't get my arms around it. I can't even do justice to it unless you, by the power of your spirit, breathe life through me, breathe onto these women fresh life into their souls, into their spirits, into their sails in Jesus' name. Amen. For those who are, we're recording this, right? For those who are listening on CD or tape, um, I wish you could see what I have on the stage right now, but I'm just going to leave you in the dark about it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I have an orphan table and an air table, and I've done this message a handful of times, and never have I seen an air table quite like this one here at Willow Creek. Can we give the girl a hand? Where's Marianne? Right there. Raise your hand. There we go. Unbelievable. So the orphan table is a rickety card table with a piece of bread on a plate. The air table is a bountiful spread of fruit, royalty. Look at the crown around the napkin. No one has ever done it quite like this. <laughs> Jesus cares about the orphan. You just read scripture and you know. And I love that the church is getting a hold of it. I mean, the literal orphan. Churches are adopting orphans out of foster care systems from, and from third world countries. That's amazing. Today, though, I'm talking about spiritual orphans and spiritual heirs. Did you know that God loves every single person he's ever made? He's a star-breathing God, and he loves each and every one of us. But like Dr. Warren Wiersbe says, love isn't what saves us. He loves everyone, but that doesn't mean everyone is saved. We're saved by grace. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can brag about it. Louis Giglio says this, your sin doesn't make you bad, it makes you dead. And while we were dead in our sins, Christ died for us. And this is what's wrong with the self-improvement consumer gospel, that you just come and he'll make your life all better. We need to know that we are destined and bent for hell. Jesus saw our need, he saw our need, he entered into a suffering that wasn't his own to make a way where there is no way. And so for those of us who've come to a place to say, I am destined for hell, I want to live forever with Jesus. I receive what he did on that cross for me. His victory, he paid for my sin. It's a free gift, but it isn't your gift until you lay hold of it. While we were yet, we were yet sinners, while our sin was in full swing, he died for us. And those of us who've trusted him for our eternity, we get his spirit in our hearts. We have eternity secure. All of his promises are yes and amen. The Bible says all of his riches then are transferred to us. We're not slaves anymore. We're not orphans anymore. We're heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. Is that not amazing? He loves and treasures the orphan. That's why he made a way to adopt us into his family. But once we are heirs, he does not want us vacillating back and forth between the two mindsets of orphan mentality and heir mentality. We think like orphans when our life doesn't go well, when we blow it. He said this himself in John 8, 35, 36. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son or a daughter belongs to the family forever. So if the son sets you free, what? 
you'll be free indeed. Do you understand what God has offered us here? Ephesians 1.3 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. If you spent a year on that passage, you'd be richer for it. And one of the roles the Holy Spirit has in our lives, we are sealed for the day of redemption. We have a Holy Spirit in us who nudges us and leads us and guides us. I am learning the Lord leads us even when we don't know we're being led at times. We're not as bright as we probably think. He leads, he nudges, he guards, he guides, he corrects, he directs. His Holy Spirit, what a gift to us. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the Bible said, is to help us understand what he's freely given us. This is so huge because if we understand what we already possess, we will quit striving in our own strength, grabbing, drinking out of broken cisterns, acting, thinking, and behaving like spiritual orphans. It's time that we move our whole lives to our heir status. What we say, how we pray, how we give, how we live out of the divine influence and provision of Almighty God. There now, for the Christ follower, exists a huge chasm between orphan status and heir status. For us, we can cross the divide so easily in our minds, but it's not biblical. When you are in Christ, you're a brand new creation. Imagine a chasm, a canyon between the orphan table and the heir table. We can make the leap so easily in our mind, but in the spiritual realm, the heavens gasp, the Bible says, when it sees us drinking from broken cisterns that cannot satisfy, because we're heirs. We got this. We got this bountiful spread. Any gift from his hand pales in comparison to the treasure of knowing his heart. Whatever our angst is, we've got that and then some in Jesus. Romans 8, 14, 16 says this. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, they're children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And in him we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. That's a huge part. There's another gospel message that says suffering isn't a part of the Christian life. Like if you're suffering, you must be lacking faith. That message devastates those of us who are walking through suffering, right? Plus, Jesus entered a suffering that's not his own. If you enter into the plight of human trafficking, you're entering into a plight that's not your own. You're bearing one another's burdens. So to give some kind of message that if you're suffering and your life has fallen apart and you've somehow missed a step, do you see how arrogant that is? I mean, some of the stuff we go through we bring upon ourselves, but want to know something amazing? His grace is still sufficient for you. He will lead you back to that place of life. Isn't God good that way? Amen. Remember, I like it when you talk to me. Thank you for that. You are an heir of God, a joint heir with Christ. So will you go through suffering and hardship? Absolutely. Are we going to get it wrong, fall down, do it right, and take the credit? Yep, sometimes. But we get to be a work in progress without the condemnation. I always marvel that he uses me on a Monday, knowing I'm going to blow it on a Tuesday. Amazing love, how can it be? We tend to go back and forth between these two tables. We change our perspective based on if we do well or if life goes well. John 10.10 10 says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I come, Jesus says, to give you life and life abundant. 
There's nothing that that enemy can't take from us that God doesn't intend to restore many times over. So I want to take a look at two women because I think we can learn a lot about who we are when life doesn't give us what we want. And the first one is Naomi. So in the book of Ruth, we read about Naomi and her husband Elimelech. They had two sons. They lived in Bethlehem, which is known as the House of Bread, and they were God's people. But there was a famine in the land. So Elimelech took his wife and two sons to Moab. There's no biblical record that says God led them to Moab, and he probably wouldn't do that. Moab was a land of idolatry. Moab was a place where they sacrificed to small g gods. Moab was a place where they even sacrificed their children to these gods. God didn't lead Elimelech, but he kept himself in the smaller story and decided, no bread here, I'm going there because there's bread there. Now, a bigger story mentality would be, I'm a person, I'm a child of God. I live in the, in the house of bread in Bethlehem. God, what, what are you trying to say to us and my countrymen? We don't have bread. How can I pray? I'm praying for my need for bread, but for our need too. If he would have inserted himself into the bigger story, he would have been part of the bigger solution. This is the enemy's constant temptation, is to drag us into the small story so we will grab small solutions that oftentimes have harsh and dire consequences. So they go to Moab, and these two sons intermarry with Moabite women. Elimelech dies. The sons must have lived for about 10 years, but then they die. So here is Naomi, a grieving widow with two daughters-in-law, Moabite daughters-in-law. Now, I know, I know what it is to speak harshly about your circumstances, but I want you to imagine what this was like, and not just... Not just because she's a woman who's lost, incredible, her lost her family, her husband and sons, but in that day, women who were alone were so vulnerable. They were inferior gender. If they had nobody, they had no rights to their land. They were cast out on the street, and they were subject to the elements. People would take advantage of them. They'd either die of starvation, exposure to the elements, or somebody taking advantage of them. Suddenly, utter vulnerability. Amazing. You think about it. And she's in a foreign land. So she hears that there's bread now in Bethlehem. Now, some scholars believe she's come into her senses at this point. I don't see that myself. Others don't think so. Others think she just kept herself in the smaller story, thinking, here's bread, we're going back to where there's bread. Well, her daughters-in-law want to come with her. And this shows you how distraught Naomi is, because these are Moabite women who say, we want to come with you. And she's like, no, 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 no. God Almighty has stretched out his hand against me. You go home to your homeland, because what am I going to get married, have sons? You're going to raise them? I'm going to raise them, and then you're going to marry them? No, that will take too long. So many people interpret that as so noble of her. But if you scoot in a little closer and look at the story, what she is saying is, the big G God, well, he's mad at me. And I'm frankly mad at him. He's stretched out his hand against me. He's left my life bitter. You're better off going to your small G God. Find a husband there and do your little thing. Have a family. Get on with your life. Because what you can maybe find there is better than what I have got here. No, you're not coming with me. You shouldn't come with me. Orpah decides to take her advice, and she goes, and we never hear from her again. But Ruth obviously was impacted by Naomi's faith over the years, because you would not talk her out of going with Naomi. Absolutely amazing. One theologian said that Elimelech traded one famine for three funerals. And this is what happens when we keep ourselves in the smaller story. We grab for short-term solutions. We numb our pain. We get ahead of God. And we suffer grave consequences. 
Orpah, we never hear from her again, but Ruth is impacted by Naomi's faith. And this is what she says in Ruth 1, 16 to 18. Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I ever allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. Naomi battled something called destructive disappointment. Have you ever been there? Oh, my goodness, have I. Destructive disappointment is this, rehashing your losses and unfulfilled expectations in a way that damages you and causes you harm. And the ripple effect is it damages relationships, it damages your destiny, it ruins your life. When you rehash and rehearse and rehash and rehearse how that person lets you down, how life's not what you thought it would be. I get it. When life strikes us right through, puts us to our knees, takes our breath away, we got to be careful what we say about our life and about our God. But Naomi had some kind of faith because over the years, Ruth acquired that faith. And this is what's so beautiful about traveling in community because we have to borrow each other's faith sometimes. Ruth was one that had the faith. We can't stop and, and, and or skim over Ruth's courage here because she's a Moabite. She's no dummy. She's going back to Bethlehem where the pure Jews live. You know how women can be. If an outsider comes to the insider group, do you know that there are women gossiping, whispering, Moabite, widow, used up? Who does she think she is? Can you imagine the risk? So not only is she taking a risk to subject herself to utter rejection when she gets there, but complete vulnerability on the trek to get there. But the kind of courage to say, I might lose my life. I'll probably be gossiped about and rejected and might do life alone with my mother-in-law. But the big G God that I have met is worth it all. I'm going to follow him there. I'm going to trust him there. God looks the earth over and he looks for faith. And you imagine some of these pure Jews are phoning it in like we talked about last night. They're going through the motions. They're one of the chosen people. We do this when we become church people. But God is looking for faith. And this Moabite woman, he found faith in her. And her story turns out absolutely amazing. We'll come back to Naomi and to Ruth in a moment. But now let's take a look at another woman. In 1 Samuel, we read about Hannah. And during the period of the judges, the Israelites were in dire straits. Political corruption ran rampant. Does that sound familiar? They lacked godly leadership, immorality on the rise. They lived in tough, tough times. This is what Dr. Wearsby wrote about that time. Listen to this. This is profound insight. As he often did in Israel's history, God began to solve the nation's problem by sending a baby. Babies are God's announcement that he knows the need, cares about his people, and is at work on their behalf. The arrival of a baby ushers in new life and a new beginning. Babies are signposts to the future, and their conception and birth is a miracle that only God can do. To make the event seem even greater, God sometimes selects barren women to be the mother, as when he sent Isaac to Sarah, Jacob, and Esau to Rebekah, and Joseph to Rachel. I'm going to pause here for just a moment because we live in times where immorality runs rampant, political corruption running amok, dire straits, a lack of godly leadership in some ways. But you have children. Who in this room has children? I don't care if they're... One or 31, 
41, 51, you have children. Okay, keep your hand up. For the people around those with hands up, make sure you're touching someone who has children because we're going to pray for a moment. Your children are tomorrow's leaders. Okay? Your children are tomorrow's leaders. And we are going to pray. I'm going to say a prayer. Would you just enter in with me because this is very, very key. Father in heaven, I thank you for the children represented in this room. I thank you, Lord God, that you appointed them to live for such a time as this. So we serve the enemy notice, and we cut off every generational curse, every generational sin, every enemy scheme to derail them and distract them from their life's calling. In the name of Jesus, Lord, would you put a divide, would you create a chasm between these children, adult or young, and people and circumstances that send a lying message to them. And Father, would you line their path with people and circumstances that over and over again speak life and truth and health and wholeness. God, may your kindness lead them to repentance. May your goodness make them grateful. I pray at, in the name of Jesus, even right as we pray now, that a dream would drop into their hearts and a strong sense of their calling. I pray that you'd open doors no man could close. I pray you connect them with the right people. I pray that these children, young and old, would start to dream dreams and see visions and take risks. And I pray that these parents, that their ceiling would be their children's floor, that their children would build on a heritage of faith. Raise them up, oh God. Raise up these kids to be leaders in our generation and the next generation and the next. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this part, I'm taking a big fat risk, but when I wrote this message, I felt strongly charged by the Lord to do this, but I do it with fear and trembling. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but the Lord also asked me to pray for those who are barren, who struggle with infertility. And I got to tell you, I've given this message a good handful of times, and it's always amazing how 9, 10, 11, 12 months later, I get an email. I'm holding a baby. God's doing it. And this world needs godly influence. So if you're someone who struggles with infertility, just put your hand on your womb. And if you came with someone who does and you know it, grab their arm. Just let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you that part of your solution for a world in need is sending a baby. So I speak life to the wombs in this room. I pray that every system in her body and her husband's body would work to support life and health. In the name of Jesus, I speak life to this couple. I pray for a miracle. I pray whatever's wrong in, in their bodies, you'd put right. I pray that you'd touch them now from the top of their head to the tips of their toes, that you'd put your hand on their womb and you'd anoint them and appoint them to bear children. I pray that you would do above and beyond all they could ever dare to ask or think. And through these infertile women, that they would become fertile, that they would bear children, and that those children would have the mark of God on their lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for indulging me there. Okay, so Hannah's story. Her husband, his name is Elkanah. Hannah was infertile. She was barren. Elkanah loved Hannah, but for some reason he kept himself in the smaller story. She wasn't giving him children, so he got an extra wife named Peninnah. I call her Penny because she irritates me, and <laughs> if you're Penny, you don't irritate me. But she does. And I had to forgive her like four times when I was prepping this message. <laughs> She'll bug you too. Just give me one minute here. So Elkanah loved Hannah, but she was barren. Elkanah was blessed. I mean, Hannah was blessed because she was loved, but she felt cursed because she was barren. 
And this happens to us too. We're blessed because we're loved, but we feel cursed when God doesn't give us what we want. Penny, she had children. And I'm not sure why Elkanah didn't put himself in the bigger story to say, this is the woman I love. I serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Would you grant us children? He didn't do that. He got an extra wife, had sex with her. She gave him the children he wanted. Penny had children, and she lorded it over Hannah until Hannah became miserable. That is catty. I want you to think about this. Hannah being broken, Penny sticking her tongue out and bopping her baby around in her face. I want you just to imagine what that was like. Hannah is a godly woman with a heartbreak. Penny is a spoiled woman with an attitude. Isn't it amazing how women, even men sometimes, they pop up with what we want most when we're hurting the most? Have you ever noticed how that happens? It's like whack-a-mole. You know what I mean? It's like you're infertile and you want to have a baby and you run into a woman who's like, I'm pregnant again. This is my seventh kid and we weren't even trying, you know, and you're like... All righty then. Maybe you have a dream of writing a book and you run into a woman who's like, I was sitting in the park and this paper fluttered through the air and a book contract landed on my lap. I never even wanted to write a book, but bestseller, you know, something like that happened to me and I'm like, yay. Anyway. <laughs> or maybe you're single and you run into a woman who's like, I swear, if I have to pick up another pair of boxers and you're thinking, I'd give anything to pick up boxers if they came with a husband. You know what I mean? Do you know what I'm saying? It's like every which way you turn, people have what you want when you're hurting the most. It is like whack-a-mole. But this is the thing, is the blessings of others will continually test our hearts and our affections. And for Hannah, there was such shame and barrenness. To have your husband's other wife rub it in your face seems intolerable. Imagine that. Well, each year... They would uh, travel to Shiloh to worship in the tabernacle. And as part of the celebration, they would sit down and have a feast. And Elkanah, I know his heart was broken for Hannah because as they sat around the table, Penny with all of her children, Hannah with a broken heart, he would feed all of his bountiful family and give her her food. Can you imagine the heartbreak being subject to that? But what does Hannah do? She rises up and she goes to the temple and she cries out to God with her emptiness, with her broken heart. And what does Eli do, the priest in the temple? The guy is so out of touch at that moment with what the Spirit of God is doing. He accuses her of being drunk. What are you, drunk? I mean, the woman cannot catch a break. She's crying out to God. What are you, drunk? <laughs> really? And she's so humble. No, I'm just crying out to God, this heartbreak. Well, finally, he gets a clue. And he says, you, what you desire will be yours within this year, my paraphrase. But within that year, she gets pregnant with Samuel, one of the greatest prophets of all time. This is what's so key. Your heartbreak, your disappointment is meant to inspire passionate prayer. And when you take your broken heart to God, your eyes will open up and you'll begin to see yourself in the bigger story. The temptation is to get an attitude, get mad at God, blame him when he's the very one who will deliver you and deliver on the promise, and you keep yourself in the smaller story. The Bible says, blessed are you who are not offended by God. God is good, he has been good, and he will be good again. Dr. Jack Hayford shares this incredible insight about the bigger story that God is writing through Hannah's life. You've got to hear this. I think it's for you and it's for me today. God uses the burden of Hannah's heart to bring a surprisingly larger solution to the burden of his own heart. Do you hear that? He uses the burden of Hannah's heart to bring about a larger solution to the burden that's on his own heart. 
Barrenness was not only Hannah's condition, but Israel's condition as well. It was a season of spiritual need with little prophetic activity. And God sought a voice to speak on his behalf to his people. Hannah could not know that her intense intercession for a child was moving in concert with God, bringing her a son, but also bringing forth the will and the blessing of God for a whole nation. As she entrusts the longings of her heart to God, he moves on her behalf, but he also advances his larger plan through her at the same time. As you keep a humble heart, as you cry out to him for the heartbreak, the longings, the unfulfilled desires, you're going to be moving in concert with God because what often breaks our hearts breaks his heart on a bigger scale. Imagine this, that the aspects of your story that are just killing you, God intends to bring a solution to the bigger story through you if you would dare to stay humble and passionate and prayerful. God is nearer than we discern. He is better than we know. He's always writing a bigger story with our lives, bigger than we can see at the moment. Orphans beg and plead and forget who they are. Heirs pray and believe. Heirs remember their divine supply. They remember they've got a father, a king who is good. And any trouble he lets us walk through will serve us in the end if we stay humble, if we persevere, if we trust him. Let's look at how these two women handled their pain so differently. Naomi grieved and she spoke bitterly. Hannah grieved and she prayed passionately. As I mentioned to you, a number of years ago, I walked through a dark night of the soul. My dad died. He, he, he went into the hospital. They discerned he had uh, stage four lung cancer. They said he's got six months to live. It was our last Christmas with him because it was days before Christmas he was diagnosed. On the day my Jordan got engaged, right? My dad died a week and a half later. Jordan moved out into the home that he purchased with his fiance. He moved in, and they started to party and post pictures on Facebook. My house, I was done raising my kids. We weren't perfect, but we were passionate. And to have an empty house, a grieving heart, that my dad was gone, and that my young son, he just disappeared from our lives for a while. The loss was palpable. And I think there probably was some midlife stuff in there too, honestly. But in this digital age, people would say things to me that were so devastating, and they, they felt true to me because I, was, I wondered, well, what did I miss? You know, and then the moms would come up to me in church at times going, I barely taught faith at all to my kids, and they're on the mission field. What happened to yours? And the eyes would well up with tears. I couldn't get out to the car fast enough because you, know, you got to love Facebook devastating time. It was like the enemy struck me through and I couldn't breathe. And then I had to go get on the air and talk. And I wanted to crawl in a hole. And I would ask myself, why did not this field not produce fruit? How did this happen? Did I miss a step? What did I do wrong? Why is this not coming to pass? And why do others make it look so easy? Devastating for me. And maybe you can relate. Maybe your marriage isn't what you thought it would be. Or maybe it ended and you didn't want it to. Or maybe you had a child stray. Maybe your finances are a mess even though you've tithed faithfully. Maybe you served faithfully at church and you've been replaced with no explanation. Maybe you lost a job that you loved or a parent or a child or your spouse or a house. Well, it's tempting to ask, why did this happen? How did this happen? And the people who preach the kind of gospel that life is good when you're good, they show up at the worst times and wonder, maybe you missed a step like Job's friends. 
But I learned for me when God was telling me, you're asking the wrong questions. And he gave me three questions that helped bring truth to my soul. And the first one was this. What is this disappointment saying to me that's not true? What is your disappointment saying to you that's not true? The next question, what is your disappointment saying about you that's not true? And what is your disappointment saying about God that's not true? If you're getting messages in the heart of your disappointment, you're not enough. God is not enough. He's not near. He doesn't care. Those are lies. You've got to get back to the place of truth. You've got to remember. My friend Jody says this, if the story is not good yet, it's because God is not done yet. When I started to remember that I'm an heir, I remember my hubby when I was curled up in a ball thinking, I just want to die. I'm done raising my kids, and this is how it turned out. I want to die. And he said, get up and fight for this like you fight for everything else. And that's what I needed to hear, and I did. And I started to march around my house, and I'm like, oh, devil, you don't get to have my kids. And I started to fight like a crazy woman. <laughs> I did. And talking to my kids about some of their wandering ways, two of them wandered, the older one had a bit of a church wound, and he made his way back around. But asking them, what was in your heart when you were there? They're like, I remembered what you taught us. It never left my ear. It was in my heart. Everybody has to find their faith and make it their own, but our prayers matter. If you start to trust God and you walk by faith, you will see him intervene in your circumstances. But here's the thing. In times of despair, we forget that we're heirs. But in times of favor, we forget why we're heirs. If you start to trust God and you trust him with your promises, his promises, your life will have fruit and power and anointing, and you will see change when you pray. And someone's going to notice your life of abundance and fruitfulness, even in hardship, and they're going to come up to you and go, how did you get there? And the temptation is to forget why we're here and to go, well, I do devos most of the time. I don't gossip much. I give a lot of money away when I feel like it. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, we, we, we latch onto the things that we're doing, and we're saying, well, really, life's good because I'm good. But this is a table of grace. We have a place at the table of grace because of what Jesus has already done. And the Christian life is to be lived in response, in gratitude to what God has already done. But if we are living in reaction to our stuff, it is a card that we will play. So when life disappoints us, it's like a debt we call in. God, you owe me. I've been living for you. I've been serving you. That's a slave. We're not hired hands. We're heirs. So you never call it in. You already have everything you need. You say, I get to have a place at the table of grace. But the enemy wants you to latch on to your good behaviors as if that's your leg to stand on so he can accuse you when you're not doing it right. You overate again. You gossiped again. You never, you always, you never, you always. Doesn't he do that? And he says, now you sit there and you think about what you've done. And so we sit here, don't we? Do we? And we rehearse our failure. We rehash our mess. This is exactly what the enemy wants us to do. You sit there, you think about what you've done. But you know what your, your father says? 
your joint heir, Jesus? He says, no, 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 no. I know, I've made a way for you. I send mercies to your door every morning. Don't sit there and think about what you've done. Acknowledge it, but then sit here and think about what I've done. Sit here and think about what I've done. 